You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. To understand any piece of literature, it is important and probably even essential to understand why that piece of literature was written. It is so true of Scripture as well. To understand any book that is in the Bible, it is essential to understand why that book was written. And more importantly, what part it plays, what part that book plays in the, in the story that the Bible is telling. The Bible is telling a story, and the story it is telling is God's story. It's His story, or history. Uh, it is the story of creation, of the fall, of redemption, and of restoration. That is the storyline of Scripture. Every book in the Bible is part of that storyline, and we need to understand how it fits, why God placed that in the Scripture as part of the story that he is telling, the, the story that he is telling of his work and his continued work. So each verse, each chapter, each book, God has placed in his word so we can understand that storyline. So when we come to the Gospel of John, we have to understand that it was written for a purpose. And he gives us the purpose. We don't have to figure it out. He tells us, the gospel writer John tells us why he wrote this book, why he wrote this gospel. He, is, he wrote this so that anyone who hears it read or that reads these pages, that they will encounter Jesus Christ and in encountering him, that they will believe in him. That's why he wrote this gospel. John 21, 31 says this, this has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. That's why the Gospel of John was written. It was written so that when we read, when we hear what He says here, that we will believe in Jesus and we will have life. So every word, every encounter, Every conversation, every miracle, every teaching, every prayer that is recorded for us in the Gospel of John is to lead us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in His name, you will have life. Everything that we read is meant to go towards that. So with that in mind, we are going to read about Jesus' encounter with an official from Capernaum. We'll begin reading in verse 43, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. After the two days, the two days he had, he had spent in Samaria, after the two days he departed, this is Jesus, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. May we hear it, heed it, and obey it. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, we come to hear. We need you to impress upon our heart truth, your truth. We need you to dislodge error and deception. Lord, because we know in the truth we are set free. So Father, we're hearing, we're listening Teach us, shape us, enlarge our hearts to trust you more, to believe in Christ more deeply. Do that work among your people in this place, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. To help us believe in Jesus, there are three key elements to this account. And the first is this, the humility of the official. We're going to look first at the humility of this official. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, is leaving Samaria after spending two days with the Samaritans. And that's just in itself, you could do a pause there and you could could just, it's an incredible thing. He didn't just encounter the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. And remember, the Samaritans were looked down upon by the Jews. They were outcasts. The the Jews would would walk miles and even a day around Samaria so they they wouldn't have to be touched or engaged with Samaritans. Jesus went right through Samaria. He engaged, engaged this woman at the well. And not only did he engage with her, he spent two days with those people. He spent two days with the Samaritans, encouraging them, teaching them. What an incredible gift. He spent two days with the Samaritans, and now he is going to head back to Galilee. I mean, apparently, we could probably infer from this that he wasn't real enthused about going back to his hometown. I mean, John tells us that Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. This is going to pick up one of the themes that runs throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, where John tells us that he came to his own, but his own received him not, that's going to be repeated 
And we see that in the Gospel of John. And here's just another example of that. We know that the people that were in Galilee, that they believed in Jesus. He turned the water into wine. But remember what it says in in chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. Meaning, their belief in him was about the signs he was performing more so than who he was in the mission that he was on. They saw the signs as an end of themselves instead of pointing to him and his messiahship that he is actually the Christ. We know the people, obviously in Galilee, some of them were at the wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. We are told here in, in, in this passage that, that they were in Jerusalem. They saw the things that Jesus did there. They saw how he, what his, in the temple what took place there. And apparently Jesus' fame is starting to spread. Even more so. And we have seen this before as we've worked our way through this gospel. Jesus isn't looking to gain popularity. He is busy about his father's business. And he knows that people are going to try to make claims on him and try to get him to go and do the things that they want him to do. And he is trying and will ultimately stay focused on the business for which he came. These people were craving signs and wonders. They're pretty much looking for sensationalism. They're looking for that woo, that awe. Not so much looking for a savior. And so... When Jesus shows up back in this area, a man from Capernaum who had obviously heard of Jesus and heard that he was nearby, he actually came to Jesus with an urgent request. He wanted Jesus to heal a sick son. Now this man was not an ordinary man. He's actually described as an official. Actually the word here for official means royalty. This was a man of stature. This was a man of position. This was a man of rank. This was a man of authority. He summoned people and they came to him. He commanded and they obeyed. He walked by and they moved over. But look at what he did with Jesus. He didn't send a servant to get Jesus. He didn't command Jesus to come with him. He came himself to Jesus. This man of rank and position. He addressed Jesus as sir. Actually, that word is often translated Lord. This was an incredible title of respect that this official, that this man of royalty was expressing towards Jesus. And he asked Jesus if he would come to his house in order to heal his son. He didn't just send a servant. He didn't come with an expectation that Jesus would have to bow and do exactly what he told him to do. So while this man was a man of position, he had been brought low by his son's illness. And he seemed to to know that in Jesus, he was not dealing with an ordinary man. This was not someone to order around. This official was desperate, and that desperation was brought on by the illness of a son he obviously deeply loved. 
Life gives us many opportunities to be humbled. Life is continually filled with struggles and adversity. You've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again. That there are three kinds of people, three essential kinds of Christians. There are those who are currently in the middle of adversity. There are those who are coming out of adversity. And then there are those who are going into adversity. That pretty much describes all people all the time. We're somewhere on that continuum in relationship to adversity in our life. Wherever we may be, adversity is part of the human experience and none of us are exempt. And here is the thing about adversity. God redeems it as part of His salvation in our lives. Hear that. God redeems the adversity as part of the salvation that he, that he accomplishes in our lives. Adversity doesn't upend what God is doing. Adversity doesn't stop the salvation of God. God turns it into His purposes in our lives. He uses adversity. One of the primary ways that He uses adversity in our life is to humble us, just like this official. And when He humbles us, He humbles us so that we might turn away from ourselves and turn to Christ. We hurt, and we wrestle, and we struggle. We experience hardship. We experience Lack and deprivation. We experience opposition. We experience pain. We experience the anxiety of a difficult diagnosis. These things are all of this world. These things are just for this life. They will come to an end one day. And in that, that's part of the hope that we have in dealing with them because we know that they're only in this life. They're, they're not going to be for eternity. And so we keep our eye looking forward. We know that, that we may suffer for a season, but we know that joy is going to come in the morning of eternity. So we, we, that's part of the hope we have in dealing with the adversity. There is an end that's going to come to it. It doesn't lessen the difficulty. It doesn't take away the pain. But it produces hope in the middle of that. But really the main part of our hope in adversity is that God is actually using it to humble us that He might pour grace into our lives. God gives grace to the humble. 1 Peter 5.5. 5. It's, it's recorded in James. I, is, that's a remarkable statement. That is one of those bankable statements. God gives grace to the humble. If you need grace in your life, he's telling you, this is what, how, how it comes into your life. You humble yourselves before me. And God uses adversity to do exactly that. To put us into the stream of his grace. 
So as we face and as we live through adversity, we should, we should steward that adversity. We want to squeeze it for every ounce of humility that it will produce in our lives because in that humility, we are going to encounter the grace of God. And we will find out that grace is greater than the adversity. And we will find that Christ is greater than the hardships. It's interesting. Jesus' first miracle was at the joyous occasion of a wedding where he turned the water into wine. His second miracle is at the heartbreaking illness of a child. Archibald Campbell once wrote this, Our lives are filled with both joy and sorrow, gain and loss. Jesus is more than equal to either occasion. He has a place in all circumstances. If we trust Him to our times of innocent happiness, He will increase our joy. If we call Him in times of sorrow, anxiety, or bereavement, He can bring consolation, comfort, and a joy that is not of this world. So family, friends, what are you facing that is weighing on your soul? You need to recognize, first of all, you're not alone. Everybody in here is somewhere on that continuum in relationship to adversity. But what is weighing on your soul in this moment right now? Can you put a name to it? Can you title it? Can you say, difficult finances. I'm dealing with an unhealthy uh, diagnosis. Stressful workplace, uncertainty with my children, not knowing what's coming next with this relationship, betrayal by a friend, whatever it may be, put a name on it. And then pivot and turn and just humble yourself before the Lord and say, here, Lord, I, I need you to be my Savior. I need you to rescue me in this. I need to see what you can do. I need your power on display in this, Lord. I give this to you. I'm humbled. I need your grace. Let's go on. The second element in this story is the sovereignty of Jesus' mercy and grace. When the official approaches Jesus, he obviously thinks that Jesus had to be physically present in the same space where his son was in order to heal his son. He says, you need to come with me. It's, it's going to be a journey. You need to come to my home. That's how, that's how you're going to heal. I mean, it, I'm sure it made sense to this official. I, I, I'm sure however he thought, I'm not exactly sure how Jesus is, is healing and doing all these incredible things, but he's pretty sure that he actually, actually has to see his son in order to heal his son. And then Jesus surprises him, and he says, Go, your son will live. And the man, we're told in that moment, he believed Jesus' word. He didn't stay there. He didn't argue with Jesus. He turned to go. So this encounter tells us some, some very important truths, some vital truths about Jesus. The first is his sovereign authority over all things. We're going to see this again. He's going to speak to the weather and it's going to obey him. Those storms that blew through here with 60, 70 
mile per hour wind. Imagine Jesus standing up and saying, be still, and it just stopping. We're going to see that. But this, this, even in this small case, where he is, he is apparently 16 miles away from where this, this boy most likely was, he, all he does is he speaks, and it happens. He has authority over all things. He saves the boy without being physically near the boy. This tells us the power Jesus has over illness. Distance isn't the issue. Authority is the issue. Power and ability are the issue. And Jesus demonstrates that He has all of them. So He can summarily say, Go home, your son will live. See, this official was limiting who Jesus was and what Jesus could do. And Jesus just plows right through those limitations. You see, there are no boundaries to what God can do. If you're like me, I can forget that sometimes. It's easy to look around and see all the obstacles, to see all the challenges, to face adversity after adversity. You know God, but, but there's something inside you that, that God's greatness, God's ability, it somehow becomes obscured behind all the noise and the things we focus on in life. And we need to hear again this morning, there is nothing impossible for God. There are no limitations on His ability. There is no end to His wisdom. There are no boundaries for God's goodness. There is no containment to His might and power. There is no restraint on His sovereignty. Nothing is impossible with God. And we get just a small picture of it here. All of Scripture is just showing us that. But there's something else that's happening here that looms just as big as as His his sovereign authority, and that is His mercy and grace. Now, Jesus wasn't interested in becoming a circus sideshow where people were distracted from His true mission by the supernatural signs and wonders He would perform. You know, that may have been one reason why He did not go with the official, but simply spoke the words so as not to attract a a crowd whose only interest was for the signs He would do, but weren't interested in the one those signs pointed to. I think... Sometimes we can devalue the importance of signs and wonders because we get fearful of those. And I don't want to do that. But we also don't want to overemphasize and sensationalize them either. They are essential in what God was doing in establishing the, the, the Messiahship to the people. But they would not, he, Jesus would not be distracted into, into being some kind of just miracle worker. He was there on mission. He was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. But even in this, Jesus demonstrated to this official such mercy and such grace to this man who was obviously hurting He was obviously concerned for the son that he loved. And Jesus healed this official son, not because the official believed. He healed this official son because Jesus had grace and mercy on him. We 
must, now use that word must purposefully, we must keep coming back to this again and again. Everything that comes to us from God our Father and Jesus our Lord and the Spirit of God comes through mercy and grace. Did you hear that? That's one of those things that needs to dislodge our sense of self-righteousness. That, that just always is trying to take hold. Everything that's good in our life comes through the grace and mercy of God. All of it. Everything God does for us is by mercy and grace. Everything God does to us is by mercy and grace. Everything God does through us is by mercy and grace. Everything God gives to us is by mercy and grace. Everything God provides for us is by mercy and grace. Every prayer that God hears and answers is by mercy and grace. Every prompting of the Spirit is by mercy and grace. Every act of obedience in our life is by mercy and grace. There is not one thing that we can point to and say, I did this, and because I did this, God owes me something. And that creeps into our, our thinking so often. Instead of abandoning and rejecting self-righteousness and running to Christ, we, we, we bolster it, we, we boost it up in our lives. Our lives, our actions... Every good thing that's in our character, none of them can make a claim on God. No one can make a demand of God. No one can live a life that places God in a position of obligation to us. It is all by mercy and grace. And both mercy and grace are an expression of God's goodness and God's love and God's kindness because if it doesn't come from mercy and grace, it's not coming to us. Let's be reminded again what mercy and grace are and what that difference is. And I know you've heard this before, but it's just helpful. It's helpful for me to hear it again. Because mercy and grace are similar, but they're also different. And here's a simple way to remember mercy and grace. Mercy says, what we deserve, we don't get. What we actually deserve, we don't get that. Grace says, what we get, we don't deserve. Mercy says, what we deserve from God... We don't get, even though we rightfully should. Grace says what we do get from God, we don't deserve, haven't earned, and aren't worthy of. So what do we get from God that we don't deserve? What is grace? What is it that we get from God that we don't deserve? Well, everything that is good. Stuff that we've, we've looked, talked about already. The love of God comes through grace. God sending His Son through grace. The sacrifice of Christ is through grace. Forgiveness of sin He gives to us that we don't deserve, haven't earned, and aren't worthy of. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing of sin, being born again to a living hope, redemption out of spiritual bondage, adoption into God's family, the light of Christ shining in our hearts, the love of God poured out in our hearts, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, filled with the Spirit, the leadership of the Spirit, made a new creation, union with Christ, placed in Christ, Christ in us, the gifts of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, fellowship with brothers and sisters. It goes on and on. None of that did we earn or deserve or are worthy of. It's a gift that God gives to us. 
through His Son, Jesus. So what do we deserve? What have we actually earned? What are we, what are we really worthy of? Well, we're worthy of the wrath of God. That's what we deserve. We're worthy of the judgment of God, the condemnation of God, the eternal banishment of God, the full consequences of our sin. We are worthy and deserve despair of the soul, darkness and spiritual plight, corruption, distortion, perversion, emptiness, futility, despair, broken relationship, despair of mind and heart, aimlessness, purposelessness, destitution. These are the things we deserve. These are the things that we have earned. Instead, God shows us mercy. He doesn't give us that. And He shows us mercy because He took all that stuff that we deserve and He put on Jesus. So when we talk about God crushing His Son, let that, let that have a full sense of what that means. He's crushed not by what Jesus did, He's crushed by our sin. What we deserve was placed on Jesus. And what did we get in grace? We got Christ's righteousness and life. God's mercy and grace is always, always, always on display in our lives. He is always at work. He is always acting for us out of what we need according to His good pleasure. See, mercy and grace are like a garland around the neck of God's children. They are always present, always active, always working for us. Do you believe this? Can you see that mercy and grace on display in your life? that was on display for this official. So again, what difficulty are you facing? Can you ask the Lord to open your eyes to see His goodness on display through mercy and grace that's all around you? There's a quote by Jonathan Edwards. What are you afraid of? That you dare not venture your soul upon Christ. Are you afraid He cannot save you? That He is not strong enough to conquer the enemies of your soul? But how can you desire one stronger than the mighty God, as Christ is called? Is there need of greater than infinite strength? Mercy and grace fills our lives. Let's move on. Number three, the third element. We're going to talk about the importance of believing in Jesus. This kind of loops us back to where I began, why this this gospel was written. Obviously, John's intention in writing this gospel was to add his witness to the other gospel writers. But he did it specifically so that all who read this, all who hear it read, will believe in Jesus. The theme of this, 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 our, our, our sermon series through the Gospel of John is come and see. Really, we could probably add to that, come and see so that you will believe. Come and see so you will believe in Jesus. The official believed Jesus' word when Jesus said, go, your son will live. And again, when he got word that his son had had become better, that the fever had lifted, About the same hour that Jesus spoke those words, verse 52. So he asked his servants, when when did his son begin to get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. 
The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. To believe is to think that something is true. It is to be persuaded that something is accurate and therefore you accept it as compelling for your life. When we talk about believing in Jesus, it's not just believing that He existed, although that's important, or that He did some good things, or that He lived a morally excellent life, or that He taught some helpful ways to live, or that He was an example to follow. All those are okay to an extent and are important. They're a beginning place, but they do not capture what John is telling us about Jesus here and what he is calling people to believe about Jesus. We don't just believe Jesus, we believe in Jesus. The word believe or believing is used 85 times in the Gospel of John. It is singularly important to John's intent in the Gospel. But we must not make the mistake of thinking that this is a generic believing. It is a biblical belief. A belief, listen, that renders the soul captured and enthralled by the one who is believed in. There is a danger. And it is easy for people to slide from believing in Jesus to thinking belief is is enough. As Christians, we don't believe in belief. We don't have faith in faith. John isn't exalting faith. He is exalting Christ who we are to have faith in. There is no power in just believing. There is power only in the object of our faith, that is Jesus. Our faith does not create realities. Our faith recognizes the realities that God has already established. And it trusts that those are true. Our faith is only powerful because the object of our faith is powerful. There is further temptation to exalt faith or to elevate faith as if it's an end in itself. I was watching a TV show where the the preacher... He was dying, and his last words to his atheist friends were this, I don't care what you believe, I just care that you believe something. That couldn't be further from the Christian truth. I remember Francis Schaeffer once talked about commenting that, that, that in his ministry, he was often engaging with young men and women who were seeking for truth, who were trying to understand ultimate realities and So much of his ministry in those years in the 50s, 60s, and 70s would be people just coming to his home and him engaging them in these kind of conversations. And one of the things that struck him that I found very interesting, he said that oftentimes these these young men and these young women would come and they say they believed in Jesus, but you talk to them a little bit further, you find out they didn't even think God existed. How did, you know, you were like, wow, how can that be? How? Because Jesus to them was just another path. He was just another trip to experience. Again, John 21. I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Believing in Jesus means believing Jesus is the Christ. That He is who John the Baptist confessed Him to be back in chapter 1. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
When we hear someone talking about believing in Jesus, but you can, you can tell maybe what they believe isn't, isn't fully developed yet. Or it does not reflect the full scripture portrayal of Christ. We don't want to belittle them or scorn them because actually that's probably God working in their life, opening them towards Christ. But we want them to open their heart to the Christ of scripture, the Christ of history, the Christ of the cross, and the Christ of the empty tomb, and the Christ that is one day going to return to judge the living and the dead. So we encourage them to go on, to keep searching, to read John. That's why, that's why having people who are searching, people who are unsure about their faith, reading through the gospel of John is so good because it's written so they might believe. So use it like that. And as for Christians, we must be careful to not put our faith in our faith. Sometimes we can become navel-gazers. We just look inward and how do I feel and what's going on in my heart and what is the level of my faith and what is the level of my trust. I want to close with this story. This is, this is a story that has comforted me and encouraged me and brought confidence in my life so much over the years. About 120 years ago, there was a man by the name of Clement Vaughn. Clement Vaughn. And he wrote a, a letter to, at that time, a renowned Southern Presbyterian theologian by the name of Robert Dabney. Dabney had moved from Virginia to Austin, Texas, almost 20 years after the Civil War, and he lived there for another 15 years. In his later years, Dabney became blind and weak and knew that his death was drawing near. So he wrote to his old friend Clement Vaughn, wondering whether he would have strong enough faith to face his impending death. Vaughn's reply was just so theologically insightful. It was so pastoral and caring. And I want you to, to, to hear it. Vaughn wrote back to Dabney, and he asked Dabney what a traveler would do if he came to a chasm over which a bridge was spanned. And this I read. What does this traveler do to breed confidence in the bridge? He looks at the bridge. He gets down and he examines it. He doesn't stand at the bridgehead and turn his thoughts curiously in on his own mind to see if he has confidence in the bridge. If his examination of the bridge gives him a certain amount of confidence and yet he wants more, how does he make his faith grow in the bridge? Why, in the same way, he still continues to examine the bridge. Now, my dear old man, let your faith take care of itself for a while, and you just think of what you are allowed to trust in. Think of the Master's power. Think of His love. Think how He is interested in the soul that searches for Him and will not be comforted until He finds Him. Think of what He has done, His work. That blood of His is mightier than all the sins of all the sinners that have ever lived. Don't you think it will master your sin? May God give you grace not to lay too much stress on your own faith, but to grasp the great ground of confidence in Christ and all His work and all His personal fitness to be a sinner's refuge. Faith is only an eye to see Him. I have been praying that God would quiet your pains as you advance 
enable and enable you to see the gladness of the gospel at every step. Goodbye. God be with you as he will. Think of the bridge. Your brother, Clement Vaughn. Trust in a bridge comes not from examining your trust, but from examining the bridge. Trust in our Savior comes not from examining our faith, but from examining our Savior. That's why we have these Gospels. To keep us focused on Jesus. Look to the bridge was this friend's advice to his dying friend. Look to Christ to have your faith strengthened and your belief in Him increased. He can sustain the weight of all of our life and all of our ministries and all of our struggles and all of our pains. And this morning, actually every Sunday morning, may we always look to the bridge and may we always look to Christ to come and see and believe.